invention to innovation. As listeners, you might be thinking, don't these words mean pretty similar things? Our next guest, Larry Marshall, will help you understand that Australia has historically punched above its weight as inventors, but have left a bit to be desired in terms of our ability to commercialise and innovate game-changing inventions on home soil. With a PhD in physics from Macquarie University in Sydney, Larry spent much of his early years studying blue-green lasers under Professor Jim Piper. Through Jim, Larry was introduced to the Dean of Research at Stanford University, Bob Byer, the university where Larry wrote up his thesis on laser physics. Larry's time in the US saw him spend extended periods in the renowned Silicon Valley, where he founded and worked in an an array of startups over a period spanning more than 25 years. More recently, Larry has served as Chief Executive Officer of the CSIRO. From the time of his appointment on 15th of January 2015 to the end of his time on 30th of June 2023, Larry was the organisation's longest serving Chief Executive in the past 50 years. Larry sought to live his innovation mantra through his leadership of the business. Among his many initiatives, Larry oversaw the creations of the CSIRO Innovation Fund, Main Sequence Ventures, he developed the CSIRO's ON program, a national science accelerator, and in 2020, Larry led the establishment of the CSIRO's Missions Program, which aims to bring together research agencies, universities, industry, government, and community to tackle urgent problems facing the country. Larry now sits on the board of the Australian National University, where he continues to champion innovation among some of our nation's brightest young minds. Hello, and welcome back to The Business Of. I'm Will. And I'm Charlie. On today's podcast, we unpack with Larry what it was that inspired him to evolve his discoveries in the field of lasers into a long-standing career as an entrepreneur in America's Silicon Valley. We discuss with Larry the factors influencing Australia's innovation dilemma. And we glean an insight into his past eight years at the helm of one of Australia's most renowned and respected organisations. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. Today we are very lucky to be joined by Larry Marshall. How are you, Larry? Oh, good. Thanks, mate. And you? Yeah, not bad. Not yeah, bad. Great. Thanks, Larry. Um, so we might get straight into it. So correct us if we're wrong, but it is our understanding that you completed a PhD in physics from Macquarie University. What made you interested in the space um, early on? And did you have any understanding of where such studies could take you? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, we, um, <laughs> no, like most kids, I, I came out of high school and I, I worked for a year um, just to get, you know, get re- reset sort of thing and then I, I went out to the Macquarie Uni open day and I, I met this um I met this kind of gangly goofy professor um or associate professor uh, his name was Jim Piper and uh he just absolutely inspired me and um it, it, it was it was sort of my dad when I was younger um who got me to sort of try to understand how the world worked and do experiments with him it was my high school physics teacher or science teacher Sally Kerwin who did the same thing and then Jim kind of finished it off and I, I mentioned Jim because he's probably by far the most influential and he ended up taking me all the way through undergrad through I did my honours year with him I did my PhD with him so he was really very different from your typical you know academic professor. Mm, mm, for sure sounds certainly sounds that way and I guess you were very different in a lot of the way you did um, a lot of things down the track, and we'll get to that. But uh, I suppose before we before we get into that, it is my understanding that um, you spent a fair bit of time applying your research um, across various uh, disciplines, including the invention of an eye safe laser. Can you speak us through that uh, for a bit, Larry? 
Yeah, so again, this is one of the things that was really different about Jim because, you know, Macquarie was a was a sort of a startup university as well. So mm. it was a bit it was a bit different in general. But but at that time most professors were all about teaching you how to become an academic. You know, you'd go off and get mm. a postdoc at Oxford or Cambridge and if you're lucky in ten years you'd become a professor. And Jim didn't want you to do that. Jim wanted you to figure out how to use your science to actually go solve problems that really mattered. To, to the world yep. and so so right from my PhD or the whole lab um, and he, he got a center of excellence one of the first ones from the government from day one it was all about you know how are we going to use lasers to solve real world problems at the same time as we're getting a getting a PhD and so the iSafe laser for me was really interesting because everything we did with lasers was dangerous because a, a laser will blind you if you look into it. Um, and, and even even those little handheld green pointers are, are very, very dangerous if you mm. if they if you look at it too long or if it gets right in your eye. Um, and so it was really limiting how you could use lasers. and I thought, gee, well, maybe there's a way to, to make a laser safe to use in public. And the trick was there's, there's, there's one wavelength, one wavelength, one color of laser and one only that that, you know, can go into your eye and it won't burn your retina because it gets absorbed in the fluid in your eye. And mm. there is no laser, at that time there was no laser that worked at that wavelength. So I figured out how to take a very common laser, um, the, oh, the YAG laser, and shift it to this iSafe wavelength and then you could actually you could actually use it. And that meant you could do, we did a ton of things with it. We did um, laser radar, which became LiDAR, which you probably know from Google and Amazon with yep. the autonomous vehicles that's yeah. what they use right um or the supermarket scanner <laughs> oh <laughs> really yeah 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 pretty wild um but but it's oh. you know we, we worked on all that stuff but that was the idea if you could make it if you could make something that, that was i say if you could get away with a lot more than you could at that time yeah wow wow that's it that's incredible and i guess so you've you've developed this uh this invention now did you did you innovate it and come look to commercialize it um yourself or what was that sort of process yeah so so the, it, we, we did um but the problem was I, I invented it at this company called FiberTech, which was it was a startup but it was a startup ah, doing gotcha. um, mostly contracting from military yeah and so um I, I wanted to do it i wanted to take the invention in, into commercial world and my boss at the time said you know no way yeah. Um, and he literally <laughs> said, "If if 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 you and if you leave and try and do something commercial with lasers, I'll see you." Oh, and this is on the this is on the east coast of the U.S. So east coast of the U.S. is not that different to Australia in many ways, because yeah. so, that's what your boss would tell you here in most companies too. And so, we, for me, that was a that was a, a, a gold leaf written invitation to go start a company. I, I might not have done it if he hadn't have threatened me. Yeah, well, I couldn't yeah, yeah. I couldn't say no at that point. <laughs> Typical Aussie, right? You know. Yeah. So, um, so I, I did commercialize it, um, and he did sue me, um, but we worked it all out. And, 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 but, but the problem was, it, it, it um, we, I was trying to do too many things with it, and so I, I was dabbling, you know. And mm. this, the trouble with the trouble with that kind of platform technology is it can do too many things. And the secret to a startup, especially one where you've got an invention like that, is just one thing. It's not the it's not the fifty things. It's the one that you choose that you put all your energy into, and you 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 make that your beachhead. You know, you you build the product, you understand the customer, you bring in revenue, you service the product, you grow the market, 
You've got to be absolutely myopically laser focused, pardon the pun. Yeah, I, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, that one in there, Larry. <laughs> yeah, on that one product, and and if and unfortunately, scientists, you know, we see endless possibilities, and we tr- we have we often have trouble just picking one thing and and sticking to it. So that was kind of my first lesson in in startups, and in the process of um, trying to figure out the one thing. I, I ran into this other company in California called Iris Medical, and, and they were in ophthalmology. They were curing, trying to cure eye disease with lasers. But they had, they had sort of very, um, very traditional way. They they didn't really have R and D, so they didn't know you could invent a new kind of laser to do that application. And they were working on this disease in premature babies, where a preemie, if they're more than about six weeks premature, oh, wow. will be born. Yeah, will be born blind, and and they were developing a laser to cure that. Wow. And it turned out the iSafe laser was a great way to do it. And so we had a, we started off with a sort of a partnership of trying to develop this laser to cure this disease. And then um, one day I invented this thing called the green laser. And green lasers had been around for a while as well too, but they were big clunky gas tube, you know, vacuum tube type things. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, huge, like the size of two refrigerators and, and you know, it wasn't something you could easily, it was a very high friction sale. If you sold one, you needed to send a technician with it to install it, all this other stuff. And mm. so, so I invented this version of the green laser, which was completely different. It was tiny. It was something that fit in the palm of your hand. And it was, uh, it was almost like going from valves to semiconductors. That was the, you know, yeah. in, in electronics, we went from valves to semiconductors. So in lasers, we went from gas tubes to, to all solid state to, to semi. And so I invented this very first one, this semiconductor laser. And the first version was the green pointer um, that you know today. Yep. And the s- second one was a, a version of that that was about 3,000 times more powerful. And it could do things that nothing else could do at that time. And so we decided to merge the two companies together. Um, and that created this company called Iridex, which we took public on NASDAQ in about wow. – um, in about 96, 1996 on, on the NASDAQ. And it and the thing that was interesting, both both the companies before the merger um, were, were doing okay. Both had, a you know, revenue and so on. But in the first two years of merging them, we made about, I want to remember the exact multiple, but it was something like, you know, um, or, yeah, in the, in, the first, in the first two years of the merger, we made more revenue um, than the combination of the companies had done in their entire existence. And, and Iris had been around for about 10 years. We'd been around for about three. So it was a really good, you know, it's a hockey wow. stick. And, and that's what happens when you inject innovation in a, in a company. Yeah. But the lesson I learned there was that they, they didn't understand the tech, um, but, but I didn't understand the market. Mm. And when you had their market understanding with my technology, you know, they're, they're the yin and the yang. That was the magic that made it made it IPO. Mm. And for a while, for a while, there was almost nothing we couldn't invent. There was almost no problem with lasers we couldn't crack. Oh, um, and it just drove, you know, went, went like crazy. So it was a, it was a really good IPO. And and also, I guess the other lesson I learned from that one, that company is still around today. So that's more oh, than wow. thirty years ago. Yeah. And they're still in they're still in Mountain View, California, <laughs> um, right next right next to Google, literally yeah. right next to Google. That's on the crazy. Street. Yeah. And the Googlers, when, when Larry and Sergey moved into <laughs> the Mountain Googlers. View, yeah, when, when they moved into Mountain View all those years ago, they thought we were this weird company because we're doing lasers <laughs> and medical. Admittedly, <laughs> you know, they, they grew a lot bigger than we did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> are, they, are they still listed, Larry, Iridex? 
yeah, uh, yeah, 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 of course. And, and the go. thing, that this, and, and the thing is, when these sort of science-driven inventions, um, they give you such an unfair advantage, such a competitive advantage that, you know, the companies that use them generally, um, you know, they, they grow a lot of employee base in the country that where the invention happens. Mm. And so, so while while most companies outsource their manufacturing to China or India. Um, Iridex still manufactures in the same building in Mountain View, California, employing local people Jeez. to do it. I know. And 30 years later, and, and it's because that 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 science-driven innovation it gives you such an advantage that you actually don't need to worry about the cost of labor. You don't need to worry about outsourcing mm. to China because your profitability is good enough as it is. Yeah. Uh, so you can focus on keeping it local and high, high quality. Yeah. In, interesting. And we will get into, we'll move into the invention to innovation uh, piece that is so prominent in your life now. And it was the, actually the title of title of your, your most recent book that you've released. Um, so not only is, yeah, invention to innovation, something that you provide extens- extensive commentary on within the book, um, but it was how you lived your career. Can you speak to why, I guess, you, like I, you've already sort of mentioned through the Macquarie influence, but why it was that you were so uh, so driven to, you know, commercialise and understand uh, how you can add value economically and um, more broadly to society than just getting sort of citations on a paper? Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so. So I mentioned Jim, right? So yeah. Jim introduced me to this guy, Bob Byer, um, and Bob was the Dean of Research at Stanford University. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Jim, Jim <laughs> I know that uni. Jim, <laughs> yeah. So Jim and Bob became mates, and then Bob and I became mates because of that. And in the end, Bob asked me to come and spend time at Stanford in my final year. Wow. And I got I got to use some of the Stanford lab. I got to hang out with the researchers. I got to meet Jim Collins in the business school. Yep. Um, and Jim said, "Hey, sneak into classes. We don't care. You know, come in and listen. You know, you learn." And, and there was this different attitude. Like um, people get, went to Stanford to start a company. Um, they didn't really go to get a degree. That's crazy. And, mm. Oh yeah. And, and when I was there, Elon Musk was there. Um, oh. not, not quite. At, not quite at the same time. But um, the paper. Well, he was part of the PayPal ma- mafia with Peter yeah, Thiel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're all there, but they were they all had these visions. And Elon at that time was already talking about doing something in space, doing something in solar, and doing something with electric car. He had an amazing he had amazing market vision, and I'll, I'll come back to market vision a bit later. But he had a really gift for seeing the future differently to other people, um, more so even than Peter Thiel did. Um, but just being around those people and around around people like Bob and, and Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great. Um, it just mm. got me to understand that because in Australia, um, you, you go to uni and you either do business school and you become a businessman and maybe a CEO or you did science and you either became an engineer or a scientist. But the idea then was, you know, you can't be both. Um, mm. It's just crazy. Stand, yeah. And it's it's still a bit that way now, right? Yeah, um, for sure. It's still a bit that way now. Yeah. That, yeah. Because it's it feels like a fork in the road. You know, if you want to do, if you want to do science or engineering, you know, you've got to be worried about your academic excellence, your science excellence. Mm. Um, and if you want to do business, you've got to be worried about your revenue. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the fact is, is everyone's got to worry about both, both especially yeah. in this world where, you know, everything's driven by, by innovation. So, so um, meeting Bob and spending time at Stanford and at the end, Bob said, here, I'll give you a postdoc at Stanford. 
And Jim said, holy shit, postdoc at Stanford, you've got to take it. And in the meantime, Jim had got me a postdoc at Oxford, right? So I had <laughs> two best, right? And, you know, to Jim's credit, um, you know, he, um, he went to Oxford and it killed him to say, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, know, well, yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, and he could be knew me really well, and he did this. He, he had hundred, he had a hundred students, I'd say, Jim, and and over the years, and he he did this for for three of us that um, me, uh, Dave Matthews, and Brad Renton, we all went to the U.S. Oh, and Danny Brown, we all went to the U.S. and we all did really well in um, commercialization of laser technology in that in that country mm. and it, it but it killed jim to say don't go to my don't go to <laughs> when he's an and alumni yeah <laughs> yeah he was he was like my dad my second father you know and so um i've known him all my life pretty much from that point where i first met him at macquarie but i'm so glad he did because you know the impact you can have by turning your invention your idea into something real that solves a problem that gets creates a company that creates jobs. I mean, that's what we need in Australia as a mm. country. We don't do anywhere. You know, we're not within Kui of the US for their ability to do that. Mm. I mean, in, in the US, something like twenty four percent of the whole US GDP comes from that type of innovation from, from company. Yeah, a quarter of it, right? You're kidding. Twenty four percent. Yeah. Do you that, know what it is in Australia? What is it? Less less than one. And, and if you think about that, you know, like, what do we have that's that big as a percentage? We have the export of um, coal, um, iron ore and natural gas, mm. which is between 30 and 40%. Um, so that's our problem, right? Yeah. If, if, we had the, if we had the innovation pillar, we, could bat, we wouldn't be so worried about the fossil exports. It wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be so vulnerable. And, yeah. and this is our challenge as a country. This is our, you know, our innovation dilemma is... We're still stuck in this paradigm that you know, because we're brilliant. Like Australia's top ten globally for science, mm. so we're amazing. In, we're amazing inventors, but we just don't. We think the job's done at invention, and and you find this, you know, when you negotiate with a university to license a technology, or when you try to get a team to leave a uni and start a company, mm. they're like, no, 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 we've done the hard part. We've done the invention. Just get, you know get lesser mortals to go and do everything else. And if, you, if you've actually built a startup, you know that the, invent, the invention's about 1% of the, the, yeah. of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And you do speak, you speak quite openly about, I guess, um, the lack of investment in that sort of deep tech research uh, phase. And you I, it's reference it as the valley, the three valleys of death um, that face our deep, deep tech ecosystem here in Australia. Um, to our listeners who aren't aware of what you mean by this, um, can you provide an explanation? And I think even in your book, you put some figures around it. Um, there's 2.5 trillion tied up in managed funds versus the 10 billion committed to research funding. Can you speak to speak to this topic for a bit? Yeah, sure. So, so the, the, the three valleys of death. Um, firstly, if if you're if you're a researcher, um, your your KPI, your your ego, the thing that drives you. Um, is your academic excellence, your science excellence, yeah. and that's that's there's a bunch of metrics that measure that, but that's that's what determines you know how good you are in the university system, how the university ranks globally with all the others, and, and that's a global metric, um, but that pulls researchers away from um, away from business, away from yeah, revenue, yeah. and and if you think about it, um, that figure in the book uh, early in the book is. Um, it's NCI versus TRL. TRL is the technology readiness level. So an idea, an invention is TRL zero, 
Mm. Um, a, pr a prototype is about TRL five, and a product is about TRL ten. So, so companies and revenue and business, they, they want TRL ten. They want something that's not an, not just an invention, but been pulled all the way through, been engineered, been tested, and been proven in the market. Mm. So, you've got these two forces, and, and they form the first valley of death, because um, there is almost no one who in Australia who wants to play in the middle of that valley of death. Um, they either want to play on the on the high science excellence side on the left, or they want to play in the um, high TRL business side on the right. Mm. But but Silicon Valley succeeds because it lives in that valley of death in the middle, because that's where you add the most value to the um, to the invention when you when you start to prove it really can be a product. So that's the first valley of death. The second one in in the US, there's a there's a very strong ecosystem. Um, that specializes in carrying things across the valley of death. And there's a lot of money floating around in there, something like 40 billion, I'd say. Jesus. Um, just in one part. And then there's private equity, which is even bigger. And then there's the public market, which is even bigger. In, in Australia, we've got about 10 billion of government funding into invention. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've got, I think it's closer to 4 trillion. <laughs> so there's a big mismatch, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole, there's an avalanche of capital, a big wall of capital on the other side. But it doesn't like to take risk in the middle. Um, it wants things to be proven and and solid. And so the, the valley of death that, that that valley of death exists everywhere in the world, mm. but it's wider and deeper in this country because Australian business doesn't really want to take that risk, and Australian academia doesn't really want to go in from the other side. So they're, they're not coming together, and there's and there's mm. very little. When when I started at Syro, there was very little venture capital in that space. Mm, and again, yeah. in the US, there's about 30, 40 billion venture capital that that, that, that does that. So, um, you know, my mission when, when I realised this, which which was you know probably twenty years ago, this Australia's innovation dilemma that you know we don't value the commercialisation, we value the invention, but not the innovation. Mm. I really made it my mission in life, and so um, we. We, we, t we took the first Silicon Valley um, deep tech company public on the ASX to prove that Australia could um, come into the valley that could fund this stuff right and it was it was one of the it, it was it was one of the three IPOs of the year it was really you know, it was incredibly successful um, at least while I was there I won't speak to what happened after I left but it was very successful <laughs> While I was there, but wow. the GFC happened. The GFC <laughs> might have happened later, but anyway. So on the on the basis on the basis of that success, we we started the first Australian venture capital fund in Silicon Valley, and we're the only fund in the valley that all we invested in was Australian um, startups to help them get across the valley of death. And from that fund, we created the first Nasdaq IPO oh, wow. of a um, science-driven, you know, deep tech company. Um, so, so it's, you know, you, you can, you can do all these things, but I realized, um, that it really wasn't making a difference and that I had to come back and get into the, get into the system myself. And so I was really looking for, um, like if you look at, if you study innovation systems, there's always one company, a kind of a cornerstone that started it all. So in Silicon Valley, it's Hewlett Packard. That yep. would be the corner, cornerstone, right? In, in Israel, it was Intel. Intel yep. with the trigger. Ironically, before Intel went to Israel, because Intel came from Silicon Valley, in the late 80s, they tried to come to Australia, but they couldn't convince the Australian government that, that it was worth doing. And if they had have done that, we, I think, would have an innovation system like Israel, if Intel had done that. 
so my idea, the, the vision I had in coming back was if I can convince um, the chairman of CSIRO, who was Simon McKeon, mm. if I can convince him of this vision, because I, I reckon CSIRO was the thing that was big enough. You know, it's in 55 places around the country. Yeah. It's got, you know, close to 10,000 people. It's, you know, it's trusted, all that sort of stuff. If we can if we can get it to be the cornerstone, we might actually start moving the needle on, on innovation. So that was the thing that really, really brought me back was the chance to to make that change. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, and Yeah, so we'll get into that we'll get into that role now. Um, Larry. So yeah, you commenced as CEO of CSIRO in January twenty fifteen. Where it's our understanding that you spearheaded a new mindset amongst management and the CSIRO as a whole. Scientists were now being encouraged to see their career path as not being limited to the lab, but to one day being CEOs of high-growth businesses built upon their intellectual brilliance. Can you speak to this, please? Because that's, you know, to us, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, was a, it was a pretty bumpy ride for the first couple of years because, um, you know, everything I was talking about sounded like some you know, Foreign some language. Silicon Valley yeah. buzzword, you know, like yeah. Yeah. Some, some, to- some tosser who didn't understand, you know, the realities of their sort of everyday challenges. And, <laughs> and there's, a bit of, there's a bit of truth to that, right? But, but, but any, any scientist in Australia, pretty much, um, that you said, you, you talk about customer, market, product, they kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? Um, and so it, it took a while to get the people of CSIRO to sort of think of the Australian public as their customer. Because, because you know, they, they, and and this there's, there's something you know wonderful inside most Syro people where they really do want want to give something back to Australia. That's why they're there. They really do want to make a difference. Mm. Um, but they're torn by you know they want to publish their science. They want to do great science. And and well, the trick was getting them to connect the great science to a problem. Yeah. Because sci- scientists always start with the science. And if you're if you're an entrepreneur, you learn pretty quickly. You've got to start with the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Which problem are you going to solve? And just who cares about it, right? And so it took a couple of years to get that mindset shift to get them to think for them backwards, you know. Um, and they didn't like the words market or product or customer. And so I learned to change it to you know national challenge. So the problem you're going to solve is a national challenge, like. How do you get Australia to net zero? What do we need to invent? You know, mm. um, how do we solve climate change? What do we need to invent? Um, and 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 then and then once they started inventing those solutions and, and focusing on a smaller number of really big problems, because similarly to me, as I said in the beginning, scientists love to do a hundred different things, and the trick is getting them to do one. <laughs> like this this year, we're going to solve climate change. <laughs> not, not quite that easy, but yeah, and so. But once they started really focusing on, on, on a few, a smaller number of much bigger problems, they started to sort of naturally change. And, and we, we, we created a couple of programs. We, we did this one thing called ON, which became the National Science Accelerator. Yep. And, and on, ON taught them, and it, it trained probably 5,000 scientists around the whole country from every institution, every university, how to go through that valley of death. And, and they, were, they became kind of the... I don't know, the, the, the super spreaders. They were the ones that went out in, back into the system and started to talk to teach others what they'd learned. Mm. And they were some of our first CEOs. Like um, if during COVID, there's this company, CoView, that does telehealth care. Yep. That was, a, that was the fir- one of the first graduates of ON. And Sylvia, the CEO, she was just in the Qantas Frequent Fly magazine. Yep. Phenomenal success. Um, but, but Sylvia um, 
to to any conventional Australian business person, she wasn't a CEO. How could she possibly be a CEO? Yeah, yeah. And to me, to me, having she didn't do a Bachelor of in, Commerce. Yeah, <laughs> as, soon as, yeah, as, as soon as I met her, I was like, Sylvia, you've got to be the CEO. Of this. Firstly, you've got to do a startup, and you've got to be the CEO. And, and our first three CEOs were like that. It took a lot of arm twisting to convince them to do it. You know. And they were great. They were all, all, all three of them. Well, actually, we had, we had well over 100 really successful spin-outs that we did that way. And not just with CSIRO stuff. I'm talking about all 39 universities. But it, but it was getting them to – it was getting the people of CSIRO to sort of think about why they were doing the science. Who were they doing it for and what, what problem were they trying to solve? And, and in the course of doing that – so the first couple of years, very, very toxic media, a lot of bad politics, a lot of rubbish, you know. But, but after that, the organization really started to grow. And I, the other thing I didn't realize going into Saro, be, because it was focused on invention and not on innovation, it had been shrinking for about th- three decades, about 30 years. Wow. And the, the culture of a place that's done nothing but shrink gets pretty toxic. And so I hadn't, and I hadn't quite appreciated you know, how negative that can make you feel. But conversely, once we started to grow again, and we did the first, we, we grew back close to half the 30-year losses. So it was a period of pretty strong growth. And it was interesting, we, we, hit, we hit two big disruptions. One was COVID. We hit mm. one before that that was a bit political that I won't talk about. But mm. in both cases, we had to sort of stop our growth and we fell back a little bit and people went, oh, God, you know, we're back to, back to the old way. But they pushed through. Mm. And the fact that we we continued to grow despite those two big disruptions. For me, it was the reason I was comfortable to leave is because they, they didn't need to be told anymore. They were already on, they're already on the mission and they'd, they'd had those two crises that they'd punched through and they mm. realized, Hey, you know, Larry doesn't need to be here for us to keep doing what we're doing. And so it felt great. It felt like, it's like, you know, almost like raising your child and then you let them go and, and into the world. <laughs> Be free. Like, little <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm super proud. I'm super proud of everything that, that, that they did. It really is extraordinary. No. Yeah, I'm um, sure. But, yeah, so... Um, uh, as you should be, yeah. And yeah, yeah. so, yeah, sorry, Will, you go. Yeah, so um, you spoke about um, Sylvia then. Um, what would you say to young scientists and biomed students at university today, um, that, you know, want to start their own company how do we how do we change this mindset well, to get more I, people to- yeah i'll probably change the tuck to the question a little yeah, bit there yeah. will because a lot of i've probably got a lot of biomed and science friends who are at uni studying mm. studying science wanting to become doctors or go into acad- academia whatever it might be but very few of them to be honest still would have given any thought to one day you know commercializing one of their hard like hard worked inventions as mm. such um what do you, do you think there's more that we can do here to try and help cr- change that change that uh, train of thought yeah yeah no absolutely so so um so on is still going and and the previous government doubled it doubled its funding which was great um, yeah the current government's super supportive as well so it, it'll it'll be i think it'll be an enduring thing i think it'll go on for for a long time that's awesome and, yeah. and awesome yeah for me, creating on, um, we did this other thing called the industry PhD. We did this other thing called main sequence ventures. For me, it was all about, you know, thinking back to when I was a graduate in the late 80s, mm. um, you know, what would I have needed in the country then that would have kept me here? <laughs> yeah. I, really don't, I really don't want to lose more of these young, brilliant kids 
to oh. other countries. I really want him to stay. And, and so that's the reason I think both sides of government said, you know, gee, Larry, it's a good point. Maybe we should try and, maybe we should try and make it easier for yeah. him to stay. Um, and so if you're studying STEM, I think you're already ahead because we're in the innovation age. Every, every company is going to need you with those STEM skills. Um, so that's already a great move that you're doing it. But, but don't let anyone tell you, don't, don't let anyone put you in a box. You know, this is the problem. We, you know, don't think because you're studying STEM that you can't do anything else that you want, anything. Mm. And, you know, when I came into CSIRO, people said, oh, he's never run a company more, with more than 300 people. How can you run 10,000? Well, you know what? You learn. And the thing that a STEM career teaches you is how to learn. That's the, mm. if you get nothing else out of your degree, you, you learn how to learn. And, yeah. and you can learn how to be a CEO. You can learn how to run a company. These are, these are learned skills. But that innovation, that fire in the belly that makes you want to change the world, that, that, that's something that, that, that's in you. And that's the thing you've got to ask yourself as a student. Do you want to change the world? You know, there's a reason that you studied biotechnology or, or, or material science or, or chemistry or whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. Um, you, if you're doing biotech, you probably want to figure out how to save people's lives. And that passion, the thing that's driving you to figure out, figure out how to do that, you will invent something in the course of your career that could be, you know, world, world changing. You could change the world with that. Yeah. Don't let anyone tell you that you need a, quote, professional CEO, usually a bloke in a blue suit. Um, maybe, came, maybe came from IBM, you know. <laughs> Charlie's in a blue suit right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it's a very good point you make there, Larry. And I think, uh, we, I think hopefully we're gradually the world's starting to open their eyes to those sorts of things because, yeah, in, in terms of also driving value in companies, I think people are seeing a great benefit in diversity of thought and opinion in the way that they should be run. Um, moving forward, I was also um, wanting to touch on Main Sequence Ventures a bit with you. Um, can you talk us through what Main Sequence Ventures, what, what it is, um, how it was formed, and what it's looking to do currently? Yeah, so, so, so that fund that, that, that I was MD of um, in Silicon Valley called Southern Cross Ventures, it, yep. it did a great job of bringing companies across to tap into the US market, into Silicon Valley. But I realized in reality, we were kind of hurting. I was, I was kind of I was succeeding but failing at the same time with the mission of the innovation dilemma. Mm. Um, because those kids that learned, that learned how to do it, they didn't want to come back. Yeah, they were staying you know, over there. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, some, of them, some of them came back. But yeah, so, so I realized that, again, go back, do CSIRO. And then MSV, I started that because there wasn't really, even though the venture capital, um, the amount of venture capital has grown a lot, thanks to Malcolm and the NISA, policy and all that sort of stuff um it still it it still tends to not invest in in risky science it tends to invest in internet um tends to invest maybe maybe a little bit in medical but but it's you know very little goes into all the other stuff the the really deep science stuff that can be game-changing um and so we convinced the government that there was a big market failure here and they let us start this fund the government only put 70 million into the fund um it got up to 500 million, um, all the, the rest other than the 70, and, and, and I put 30 in from CSIRO. Um, so other than that, other than that 70 of government, 30 of CSIRO, the rest of it was all superannuation funds. We got Temasek from Singapore. We got a couple of US mm. um, big, big uh, entities to put money in. Things that had never happened before, but mm. because it was backed by CSIRO, people felt comfortable doing it. It's amazing. Um, well, it just became a billion dollar fund. 
So it's a billion dollar fund now um, investing in science and it's global top quartile. And, you know, I'll tell you, everyone, including me, when I was pitching this idea to potential investors and, and I did it with um, Bill Barty, who was my partner at, at Southern Cross. Yeah. Um, and then and then the other partners, you know, um, Martin and, 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 and Mike, I'd known for probably 20 years and so convinced them to come in. And they have dri- they've done it. They have driven it. And Gabby, who's the newest um, partner, mm. um, she's phenomenal. Um, they've done it. But for me, it was that recognizing that simple truth that this, we're not putting enough money into the space that could be the biggest return for the country, for the national benefit. Mm. Um, and that's what we were trying to fix is that market failure. Investors who, like Sam Cecilia at Host Plus, he was a visionary. He Because I told him, I said, Sam, this is not going to be as good. Like if you're looking for a pure maximum financial return, which most superannuation funds manage will tell you that's their job, then then this is not going to be it. But he said, yes, I believe you, um, but my members will love the idea of having such a profound national benefit and and that's why they're members here so he, he went out he literally went out to his members and said we're going to make the country better mm. by doing this mm. and we're not going to lose money we're going to make money but it's it's not going to you know and he got he got he was such a strong supporter um of of that that it kind of made the other superannuation funds look twice yeah i think it was him i was I think it was him that got them in and i'm just so glad that it's become global top quartile because it turns out actually it is just as good an investment. Yeah, I was going to say. There's a bridge or a toll road, you know. Um, so we've sort of proven that, which is fantastic. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I think, yeah, you mentioned some of the some of the sorts of businesses you're trying to invest in that would have previously been starved of capital. Um, I suppose, does Main Sequence, um, does it offer, how do you guys work with your portfolio companies? Do you, is it quite hands-on or is it more, do you let them run their course themselves? It, it it, it depends because most of them, a lot of the companies came from on. The oh, okay. Yeah. So, so they wanted, they, they, they needed help. Yeah. Um, and some of the companies we built, we built together, like very hands-on. Others, <laughs> others, as we got more established, they others came in and they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were great. They were, they were ready to go. And, and for that, it's just provide capital and some advice, but, but don't, don't get in their way. Yeah. And, and the ones, the ones that came out of on, this is the, again, it's what I was saying about sorrow. You feel like a parent, like it's, it's time to let them fly. There's a moment for every science founder um, that where they realize they really are a CEO mm. and, and then they kind of, they push back a bit, right? They, they don't, they don't want you, they don't want the help so much. They don't want to be told <laughs> what to do. They want to figure it out themselves. And, and that's exactly like your children as they <laughs> teenagers, right? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's, it's a great thing. And, and it's it, it's sort of it's funny it's bittersweet right you because you, you feel like the father and then you realize they don't need you but that's good that's you sh- you've got to celebrate that that's and, a good thing mm. yeah no, for sure for sure all right and I guess moving forward I guess for you now Larry um, you've just wrapped up at the CSIRO I imagine taking some well-deserved time off um, what are your ambitions moving forward I guess for invention to innovation in Australia I'm sure you've got you don't seem like the sort of person who uh, sort of sit, sits there not doing a lot for for too long. Yeah, no, I'm I'm thinking about the next move now, um, and I'm thinking about something um, 
in the Valley of Death, <laughs> with, a lot, with a lot of influence. Well, I spent my life in the Valley of Death, let's face it, so pretty comfortable there. But, but I really want to leverage the influence. Sorrow gave me a lot of influence over Australian CEOs, you know, the ASX 200. Mm. So I want to have a bit more, I want to leverage that to try and get a few more of them to lean in to fund more Australian science. Yep. And, and I've got a fair bit of influence over some of the universities. So um, I joined the ANU board. Um, just recently, oh, wow, just wow. try and have an influence there because that's that's sort of CSIRO's sister organisation. So the yep, the yep. Um, uh, the education minister asked me if I'd do that, and Julie Bishop, who's the chancellor, so it's great yep. working with them. But it's yeah, I think it's still the same mission, trying to bring the great research, top ten in the world, into business, yeah. <laughs> get them connected, yeah, so we can be top innovation in the world. But the last thing I'll say. Um, there's a, there's a, you guys have heard of Thomson Reuters, the international rating organization. Yeah, yeah sure know. have. Yeah, so they rank the world every year for the most innovative companies, and they do it in different categories. Um, mm. Back in 2017, CSIRO became the first Australian entity of any kind to break into that global top 20 list, and, and we're still there today. Wow. So my wishes, my, my, my wishes, <laughs> to get an Australian university in there yeah, and an Australian yeah. company company in there because that'd be the trifecta right if we do yeah, that yeah. then we know then we know we've got you know we've got an ecosystem happening so yep yep no come, come back and check but that's my kpi going forward <laughs> well i like we'll hold we'll, to that larry yeah we'll, yeah we'll we'll be we'll be keeping a close eye on the thomson reuters rankings <laughs> <laughs> all right mate well listen thanks so much for um for the interview today and I, I love what you guys are doing. You're going to make a big difference to by inspiring um, these these young um, STEM students. You know, mm. to help them help them know that there's so much more they can do, and they don't need to be stuck in a box. For sure, hundred percent. Thanks so much, Larry. We are uh, we really appreciate you giving up so much of your time because we understand that you like to keep yourself very busy. So yeah. uh, we we are very we're very grateful for you um, carving out some time for us, and we know our listeners will benefit from it greatly. Fantastic, fellas. All right. Well, awesome. have, a, have a wonderful day in, in beautiful Brisbane. <laughs> yeah. Will do. We'll look, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for listening to The Business Of. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating and following us on your chosen podcast platform, LinkedIn and Instagram, as it helps others find us.